So, questions this afternoon? <coughs> I tried to order them in some kind of a flow. The first one um, has a, a little bit of a context, which I won't read, but um, relating to the talk yesterday about delusion and impermanence toward the end of the talk, the question that arose, how can I cultivate a strong, committed relationship with the understanding of impermanence? And I take this question to be, in some sense, what's the relationship or how can there be how, how does love work in relationship to impermanence? I think this um, this question, they do kind of feel sometimes like they're on opposite sides of our mind in some way. That the, the open-hearted connection to love and be loved, you know, feels like what's the point if it's impermanent? Or uh, how can how can it be? Um, you know, how can we truly open to this truth of impermanence and truly love at the same time? I think this is a question that we all have to explore. It's not a, it's, it's, it's a, it's a pretty universal question, I think, as we start to really open to the truth of impermanence. It relates not only to committed relationships, but to, you know, our relationships with our families and, and recognizing they're going to die and we're going to die and that, you know, change happens. And so it's not an easy exploration. So I'll start at first, I'll first explore on the side of love a little bit. Our usual relationship to love, I think, often has a give and take quality to it. There's a, a wish to open and be connected. I think we all have that wish to open and be connected. And yet it also comes with the feeling that we need something back. If we're going to be that open and connected, that we need something back. We need, if we're going to be open and connected with somebody, they need to be open and connected with us. And that's the only way that it works. I've seen that in my own mind, but that belief. Sometimes I've even seen the idea that 
the feelings of that open and openness and connection when they're not reciprocated, I've had the, the belief or seen the view that, oh, these feelings aren't appropriate. I, s- I shouldn't have these feelings. So that's a piece to explore around love itself, the, um, the notion of that, that kind of sense of vulnerable open connection only being okay if certain conditions are met. That might mean, for instance, that I only let myself have that open, vulnerable connection if there is this agreement with someone, you know, we have a commitment to each other. And I'm not in any way in this discussion uh, saying in any way that these commitments are not valuable and useful. our exploration of the feeling of that open connection and just willingness to explore it. I mean, again, using these tools of, of feeling into when we feel that open connection but want something in return, what happens? What happens in the heart? The... Uh, at least in my own exploration of this, exploring the feeling of the connection and feeling like, oh, it's not returned, shouldn't have that feeling. There's a contraction around the feeling. And so just watching it, using the tools of, of awareness and interest and curiosity to not have any like rights or wrongs or shoulds or shouldn'ts about what's going on in our hearts and minds, but just to investigate this is what's happening. And so there's this wish for connection and this fear that goes along with it. And that fear is often related to the impermanent truth of impermanence. When we um, see this, we see that the feeling of that open connection I really think that is, that is metta. That is the quality of metta, this open-hearted feeling of being connected with another. And it, it uh, maybe surprisingly, doesn't actually need anything in return. In fact, it's diminished when it needs something in return. Somehow that, that open-hearted connection shrinks when it needs something in return, when it has conditions on it. And so this, is, this is, you know, can be discovered through, for, through watching, through exploring the feelings of connection and the feelings of contraction that happen with the fears, the confusions, the needs, the wants. And I guess what I would propose is a 
question, as an exploration, is the possibility that really opening to that love and really opening to the truth of impermanence together It's like the, 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 the contractions around that love have to do with the mind not really opening to the, the possibility, the truth of impermanence, the truth of suffering. I think a lot of us are you know, afraid to offer that connection because of fear that we'll suffer. And so opening to the truth of suffering, opening to the truth of impermanence, it asks us to begin to to look at how to let go of that contraction around that love. And in some way, uh, just to look at the possibility or the question that really opening to both the love and the impermanence together allows for and creates a stronger connection. And so maybe it sounds paradoxical, but I think really opening to the truth of impermanence in a committed relationship could make the relationship more strong, more committed, more precious because the understanding of impermanence is held with that love. And so these are just some reflections uh, related to some of my own exploration around this feeling of exploring love, exploring this feeling of connection, the vulnerability, the fear. One, really it was a life-transforming moment. You know, we have some of these life-transforming moments in in our practice, perhaps, a few. You know, I can probably count them on a couple hands, you know, the number of really moments, just clear moments where I knew that there was a shift, deep shift. And one of them was around love, where I was feeling into this push-pull around having that vulnerable open heart and feeling like, Oh, it's not safe. It's not safe. And at some point in that exploration, just feeling into it, being mindful of it, just watching it, some part of my mind questioned, and this was a question that just arose. It wasn't a question I thought up. It was just, it it arose. What are you afraid of? And in that moment, the fear fell away. And there was just the sense of connection, of open-hearted, vulnerable love. And I recognized in that moment that was the feeling that I had been looking for. 
didn't actually need anything back. It was just love. That moment was very powerful. I would say it changed my life. So I encourage not only reflection on this in terms of thinking about it, but feeling into the uh, the question or the push-pull around the feeling of commitment, of the connection, and the places of contraction, and just exploring it. A couple of questions related to defilement. Can you talk about the word defilement? Which I, this morning, let slip here in the hall. Uh, I um, have been consciously trying to not use that word, and yet it's emblazoned across Sayadaw's book. So... It's coming up in the meetings and people are using the word and people are questioning the word. And um, so um, the word defilement is a translation of the Pali word kilesa. And uh, I think in, uh, in English, the translation of defilement um, Often we have a, a very, uh, you know, it's it's such a it, it has such a negative tone to it or something. It's like to think of the mind as being defiled. It's, it's we take it personally, you know. It's it's uh, my mind being defiled by my defilements, and I really own them, and it's a problem. Um, so you know the word the word has some stickiness to it. Um, I don't know about that. The question says, does its poly original have the same connotations as the English? I don't. I don't know actually the answer to that piece of the question. Um, one thing that I think is an important. Uh, Exploration. Well, so the word defilement, you know, what does it mean? Kalesa, what does it mean? Basically, it's um, those states of mind that are based in greed, aversion, and delusion. So they are the uh, states of mind that um, hook the mind into suffering. Like they create the conditions in the mind to to suffer when they are um, acting as motivating forces in the mind. And so if an intention of aversion arises and we act in that in our minds, in our speech, in our uh, bodily actions, there's a way that we're cultivating that and spreading the seeds of aversion in the world and in our own minds. And so this is the, the... and I think in my understanding kind of is that defilement, the kilesa, kilesa is is 
kind of counterposed to um, sudi, which means purity. That basically the the kilesa creates stains. There's one there's one um, sutta that talks about. I th- I think that. I, I think I remember this right. I'll put it out there, but but hold it with a lightly. There's one sutta that uses an analogy for the kilesa about um, a cloth that has stains on it, and that if you try to dye, if you try to you know have that cloth take up color, it's going to take up the color in a blotchy way because the stains are on the cloth, and so. Um, you have to scrub the cloth and get the cloth clean before seeing what you know what what the what that whether that cloth can take up the dye purely or cleanly. And I think that the uh, the word kalesa is akin to the word for stain, like a stained cloth. So to me, that's kind of the the connotation it has in Pali. It's counterposed to something that's clean and pure, and that it's 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 obstructing or obscuring or staining. So maybe stains. We could talk about the stains of the mind, but that's not a, a way that we talk about mind states. So so that's that's one way in which the the word is understood. One important point about this is that these stains are understood as something that's possible to remove, that they're not inherent in the mind. So that's a hopeful message around the notion of a stain. It's, it's possible to do the work of cleaning the cloth to remove the stains. It's possible to do the work, the work that we are exploring here. You know, if we want to carry this analogy further, it's like you take a stained cloth, a cloth with dirt in it, and you put it in a washing machine with soap and water. It's like the mindfulness is the soap. Mindfulness, the the uh, the agitation in the washing machine is the energy. So the energy of the agitation and the soap and the water, basically those two pieces together, the chemical way that the soap works is it basically it attracts the the soap goes, the soap and water go through the cloth and they. Uh, chemically, the uh, the so- the the dirt binds to the soap, and so it pulls it out of the cloth. And so the mindfulness kind of does that, you know. With the mindfulness and effort, it's the mindfulness that is like pulling those stains out of the mind. The mindfulness and wisdom pull the stains out of the mind. So it's a you know the the work that we're doing is this scrubbing kind of activity. Little washing machines turning away. So another important piece here, in terms of this, um, this is this is kind of more my own understanding. As far as I know, this is you know, not in the suttas, but this is just comes from my own exploration in terms of watching defilements. 
Sayadaw talks about uh, when um, when we can observe defilements, you know, when they're when they're in the observing mind, when when they're hidden in our view, when we have the you know the aversion or the greed kind of hidden in the back of our mind and they are conditioning how we're doing something. So we have an aversion in our minds and we're looking at the pain in our knee and we're looking at the pain in our knee with the intention like, let's get rid of this. Let's watch it until it goes away. I want this to go away. That that attitude of mind is in the observing mind. And so, you know, we have this notion of what's observing the experience and the experience. And when the um, the kalesa is in the observing mind, it's condition, it's functioning as a kalesa. It's functioning as a defilement. It is creating more impurity. The choices in the mind are are being motivated by that state in the mind. And so the, the, I'll use the word defilement right now, it's functioning as a defilement, that aversion, when it's in the observing mind, when, when it's not recognized as being present. But when we recognize it, when it becomes something that we know, oh, aversion is happening, aversion is happening. And we're observing that aversion with a mind that's balanced, non-reactive, just n- knowing, as we've talked about, you know, oh, it's just aversion. Aversion is a mind state that's arising in the present moment. This aversion is conditioned. Understanding it as a phenomenon, it's no longer conditioning our choices, it's just being witnessed. In that case, it's no longer functioning as a defilement. And so the same, the the mind state of aversion, anger, frustration, irritation, whatever, all of these reactive emotions, when they are observed with mindfulness, they're not, they're not defilements anymore. They're just objects. They're just experiences. And so I think of defilement as being a function in the mind. It's, it's, it's the way the, the mind is, is working. Is the mind working motivated by greed, aversion, delusion? That mind is creating suffering for itself. That mind is stained in that way. It's not going to become clean, using this analogy of the cloth. But I think sometimes the confusion is that there's still the feeling that when we're looking at aversion or looking at some reactive emotion, we feel like, well, it's still a problem, it's still there. Well, that's, a, that's an attitude. That's a, you know, that attitude, it's a problem that I still have that. That's an attitude that we need to bring, oh, right, that's happening and it, b- believing it's a problem is happening. Again, if we can uh, know what's happening with a non-reactive mind, it's not functioning as a defilement. There's a cartoon in the book, actually. I I noticed I was just flipping through, looking at the cartoons the other day. 
And there's this little picture of it. It looks like a little dust bunny of um, a defilement, and it's got these little grinchy faces on it, and and it says, I'm a defilement, and it's like making faces. And and then um, there's a picture of a meditator there or something, and the meditator sitting there is observing the defilement, and, and uh, the little dust bunny just then has a, a little bubble that says, now I'm just an innocent object. So the 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 mind that the what's happening in the mind around the mindfulness, the uh, awareness, the wise view transforms them, even if they're still there in in the mind. It transforms them into just objects. Neuropsychologically, I'll just mention this because this is, um, sometimes this can be interesting for us as science-oriented people. Um, There were some studies done quite a while ago, long time ago, around acknowledging difficult emotions, essentially using what we would term as noting. And so they put people in machines and had them hooked up to all these things to find out what was going on in their minds. And basically the emotions are kind of in the, the, the lower part of the brain, maybe in the limbic system in this area, the more um, base, basic part of the brain, that's where that's happening. When, uh, so that the, the was the largest area of brain activity when people were kind of immersed in their reactive states of mind. When they were given the instruction, just know, you know say, say to yourself, yep, fear is happening. Okay, fear is happening. Something like that. When they were instructed to do that, what happened is whole different regions of the brain were engaged, which diminished the activity in the, that, that lower limbic system. And so it it creates the conditions. The way I kind of think about it is it creates the conditions for like putting the mind into neutral. I, I said this in a couple of the groups. I don't remember if I've said it in the hall, but what it feels like to me sometimes is when uh, when we notice a reactive emotion, we notice a, a defilement, It's kind of like the, the, the mind is going really fast down the freeway. It's like this, this, this momentum of that defilement is happening. It's just going. And when we become aware of it, it's kind of like, you know, in terms of the analogy, it's like putting a car into neutral when it's going that fast down the freeway. When you put the car into neutral, the car doesn't come to a stop, but you're no longer giving it the gas. And so it's kind of like that as we bring mindfulness and wisdom to knowing these, these uh, reactive states of mind. It's like putting the mind into neutral. Those patterns are no longer like wearing more ruts and cementing themselves in the mind or in the brain even. You know, it's, not, it's not continuing to wear the groove of that pattern. And so it it will come to a stop, but it do- often doesn't come to a stop immediately. 
You know, it's got a lot of momentum, like that car has a lot of momentum. It's not like being mindful is putting on the brakes on the car. It's like putting it into neutral, and you just watch it come to a stop, and hopefully have some ability to steer so that you don't crash and burn in the process. I seem to sometimes put too much attention on the defilements, and my mind gets aversive and exhausted. At other times, I seem inured to them, just, oh yeah, that again, so not interested in investigating or bringing in wisdom. Can you discuss finding balance with awareness of greed, aversion, delusion? So I hope some of what I've said begins to address that, but I want to just say a couple more things here. So um, first thing I want to point out is that in doing this investigation, you know, the person who wrote the question is learning something about their mind. Putting too much attention on the defilement is creating aversion and exhaustion. That's a learning. The mind begins to understand, maybe that's too much. And so, you know, it's like, okay, back off. And maybe it goes a little far the other way. And then we realize, oh, it's just like, it's just, it's beginning to take root again. And so we learn. It's like, this is a learning process. We learn from watching our own minds. So um, a couple of pieces around this. But just to say that, you know, this process, we, we learn in our own experience what works and what doesn't work. Our, our own minds give us feedback. This person's a, a very clear about it. When I put too much attention on the defilement, my mind gets aversive and exhausted. Okay, you know, that, that sounds like pretty clear feedback. So maybe it's too much. Too much digging. Maybe a, a thing to check into might be, is that attention on the defilement in order to make it go away? Does it have an agenda? Rather than the... Uh, sometimes Sayadaw says... Relax and learn. Can we just be interested in learning about these patterns in the mind? Again, the pattern becomes just a pattern to watch and not a defilement per se, not functioning as a defilement when we're observing it. And yet if we're observing it with the idea it has to go away, there's yet another, there's yet another uh, attitude in the mind that's unseen. So check into that. Is there this, in terms of putting a lot of effort into observing it, is there an agenda there? It can be greed. I've seen greed in looking at the defilements. Not, not just about, it's n- and not just about wanting it to go away, which I think of as more aversion, but, but it's almost like the greed of wanting to know. Like, let me really figure this out. You know, I'm going to learn about all of these pieces. And, and it's way too much energy into that. And so sometimes when I find myself putting too much effort into something or it feels a little bit over-efforting, I'll ask myself the question, can I back off the effort here and still be aware of this without getting lost? 
So that's another place to explore. Is it possible to just back off of the effort? And then the other side of the question here, I seem to get inured to them, just, oh yes, that again. Well, it's hard to tell from the, the writing, because I'm not hearing a tone. <laughs> I mean, it could be, oh yeah, that again. Or it could be, oh, that again. The first has an attitude of, that again? Ugh, I'm not interested. Just, just kind of like let it do its thing, um, turning away, not, not, not really, um, uh, it's kind of like in, in effect still in the mind and it's so it's not being known. Or it might simply be, oh, that again? And if that, if it's like that, because I'm wondering here, I seem inured to them, oh, just that again, and not interested in investigating. Um, I wonder with this person if there's a little bit of attachment to investigation it's hard to know without talking to the person, but wonder if there's a little attachment to investigation and feeling like it's not okay to simply settle back and just witness what's offered. It's like, oh, that again. Can I just be with it? As opposed to trying to look and dig and figure out and analyze. Oh, that again. So that's something to look at, um, maybe a possibility that there's an idea of the meditation being uh, an active investigation, and there's a possibility of the meditation being a very receptive uh, willingness to just watch the investigation, or watch, the, watch what's happening. If there's an unwillingness, it says, not interested in bringing in wisdom, if it feels like it's just like dismissive, if the mind feels like, oh, that again, I would notice that attitude. But it's not that you have to get rid of that. Again, you know, it's, there's, so, there's, a, there's a poem that I found. I, I, I love this poem, and I, maybe I'll read it tonight at the nine o'clock sitting. It's one of my favorite poems from the Tibetan tradi tradition. And in the poem, there's a, a sentence. It's repeated a couple of times. There's nothing to do or undo. And that has been very important in my practice, this recognition, oh, nothing to undo. It's like, oh, there's unwillingness to investigate happening right now. Rather than feeling like I have to undo that and try to construct the interest to investigate, it's like, oh, nothing to undo. This is what it feels like to not be willing to investigate right now. Maybe what's happening is the mind is tired and wanting to take a break. Oh, this is what it feels like to not want to investigate. Oh, actually, it feels like the mind is resting. Okay, what's that like? Actually, it feels pretty peaceful. So to not, th not assume, there's so, there's so many ways, subtle ways that we assume uh, 
what good practice is. And to me, this, this kind of practice of just watching and being willing to let the mind do what it does, but be interested in it, even if it's interest in non-interest. It's like, oh, the mind's not interested right now? Okay, let's see what happens if we allow that. What's it like to not be interested? I notice this sometimes at lunchtime. I find uh, the mind kind of goes into this, oh, it's not terribly interested in paying attention to the food or the eating. It's, I'm eating, but it's not so interested in that. And, and I notice that my gaze goes unfocused and I'm just watching this. And, and at some point, it's like, it's like there's a feeling of almost checked out of not interest. But at the same time, when I, when I hang out with it, I recognize, ah, the mind is needing some rest right now. It's taking its rest. Oh, that actually feels pretty good to let it not have to be doing much right now. So, you know, not having the agenda that we think we always know what we need to do. Being willing to let the processes of mind and being present for it. it this takes the being present for it, right? This is, this is uh, w- as the mindfulness gets stronger and can be really present for whatever is happening, nothing to do or undo. And we need to have some wisdom around when we can explore that possibility. Because there are times when nothing to undo is like not the right instruction because the mind is running away with aversion and taking us down a rabbit hole. And in that case, it's like nothing to undo is not a good idea. It's like, ah, oh, let's, let's explore what's an appropriate response right now. Maybe I need to put my attention on something else. And so the, these instructions are contextual and we need to have some discernment about when, when they're appropriate. So another question about defilement. This one's more specifically asking about my own practice. I've mentioned a number of times in the hall around a pattern of self-hatred and somebody asked if I would explore what, how I worked with that, what happened. The questions are, can you elaborate on how you worked with transforming self-hatred? What were the most helpful strategies? Did you use self-compassion, metta, and loving-kindness along with awareness practice? Has it dissolved or does it still arise with or without aversion? Um, so this is something I'm happy to talk about. It's, it's, it's easy for me to talk about, largely because it is, um, I would not say it's gone. I'll start there. I would not say the pattern is completely gone. Uh, but it's so, it's like, it's like there was a rut in the mind that was so deep. It was like, you know how it sometimes feels like a ball will go, it's like if, if, if you get anywhere close to some particular pattern in the mind, it's like a ball drops in a very deep rut and it's like really hard to get it out of there. Like that's how it felt with self-hatred. Like a really deep rut in the mind. And at this point, I would say that that rut feels like this. 
very easy. Does not get stuck in that rut. I still notice, I still notice those thoughts. I would say the largest transformation has been around the belief in those thoughts. They're recognized as thoughts and they don't so much trigger the cycle of believing, which is where the problem comes. (laughs) It's just a thought. So so that's kind of answering the last one first in a way. Um, How did I work with this? Boy, this was this was a lot of a lot of work, a lot of exploration. It was interesting in some ways that um, uh, it was a surprise to me. I did not know that I had so much self-hatred in my mind until I started meditating, until I started noticing the thoughts in my mind. It was like shocking to hear myself say, you're stupid, you're no good, you're a failure. I was like, whoa, I had no idea. This is kind of something where we might think, um, you know, well, is meditation actually helping here? I thought I was actually pretty competent. I thought I was like, you know, in pretty good shape, but, you know, I'm discovering that the mind is telling me I think I'm a failure. So that was pretty hard. It was pretty hard to actually open to it initially. Um, So beginning to recognize it, you know, basically starting to get familiar with the fact of its arising. Watching the conditions for its arising. One of the early uh, things I noticed around it, for me, and this is, again, you know, this is my story. It's, it's my path. When you investigate your own patterns, you'll discover your own things. But one of the first things I discovered was that this pattern of self-hatred was intimately connected with this you know, as I said, I kind of had a sense of myself as being a really competent person. So the pattern of self-hatred was intimately connected with this pattern of thinking that I was competent. So I would be, you know, noticing in my meditation, every now and then I'd notice, you're a really good yogi. You're probably the best yogi in the room. You really know how to do this. And, you know, initially, it was kind of like, yeah, I noticed there's some clinging there, you know. Notice that, that that's some selfing. But what I didn't recognize early on, and, and it, what began to become clear, is that very pattern of, you're, you're doing this right. You know, you're competent. You're good at things. That mind was a setup because essentially it was like, that's what I thought I was supposed to be feeling. That's what I thought was the, the state that I was always supposed to be in. And things happen. Things happen that prove that I'm not always com- competent, at least in my mind, my idea of what competence is, my idea of what being good at something is. Circumstances happen to prove otherwise. And so what began to, what began to happen is that I noticed that when I had this, you know, oh, yeah, you can do this. You're really good at this. 
And I think one of the early places I really noticed this pattern was around the practice itself, this cycle between, you know how to do this, you're a good yogi, and you are terrible at this, you are a failure, you have failed, you should just stop, you should not even try meditating anymore. That, that these two were intimately connected. And initially I thought that basically what I had to do is get rid of the, you're a failure, and just have the ones that you're good. I thought that's what was supposed to happen, that we're supposed to feel good about ourselves. I'm supposed to feel good about me. But I began to notice, and this is, this is a little scary, you know, I began to notice, wow, one is a setup for the other. When I have that idea, I'm a good yogi, it creates this standard I have to live up to, and it's impossible. It's impossible to live up to that standard. And so I began to recognize that I had to be very, very careful to notice the clinging to that being competent. So I began, I began being, not only noticing the side of you're failing, you're bad, you don't know how to do this, but noticing the side of you're competent. It's like uh, just being as careful to recognize the one side as the other. That actually began to really help to diminish the, uh, f- that f- one level of reactivity around self-hatred. But there were some deeper levels, much deeper levels. And over the course of the next few years, I began to really explore the pattern of the self-hatred itself, um, the deeper layers of that and began to understand through just, you know, and this, this is a long process of being willing to meet it, being willing to know it, uh, knowing when to step aside, knowing when it's time to take a break, all these things that we've been talking about. When it pulls me down the rabbit hole, just, oh, not now, go take a walk, go look at the trees, just take a break. And when the mind can meet it. When the mind was able to meet it, I spent a lot of time watching it. One particular three-month course I think still of as my self-hatred retreat. At one point, you know, I I kept feeling like this is in the way. This is a problem. This is like not where the practice is. I, you know, but at some point it was just so strong and so much. It's like, okay, I surrender. This is what this retreat is. I have not got a choice here. And so just really began watching it. To address the second question, did I use self-compassion, meta, or loving-kindness along with awareness practice? In my um, history of practice, um, I tried meta. Self-meta was really hard, not very accessible. Um, self-compassion was somewhat easier, um, but in general it created a lot of pain and headache and suffering to try to do those practices. So at some point I just said, they don't work for me. You know, just not going to do it. And so largely my work with self-hatred was purely through the awareness practice. Um, so just knowing it, watching it. And by the way, I'd had, I'd had therapy, not so much for uh, self-hatred, but miserableness, let's say. I knew I was miserable. 
I didn't know that that was connected to hating myself, but you know, I was miserable. Um, and therapy hadn't felt like it had made too many inroads into that. But the the mindfulness, so just being aware, being present for the pattern as I saw it. At one point, again, all that we've been talking about, a lot, actually a lot of my understanding about how to work with defilements came from working with self-hatred. <laughs> so, you know, noticing um, what arises when the self-hatred arises, thoughts arising, history arising, you know, in the present moment, seeing it like congealing, like noticing it's not there, you know, kind of having some moments of relief and recognize, oh, it's not here right now. Know, p- noticing presence and absence of something that's strong is really, really helpful. So when we um, uh, have a strong identification around something, when we can recognize it's not happening, that begins to poke holes in the identification. It begins to actually point out, well, it must not be me because it's not always here. It's a visitor then. We see it comes and goes. So we begin to work with it as a visitor, as opposed to something that's inherent and always there. And so this was beginning to be clear, that it was something that came and went. And I remember one evening, uh, or there was a whole long stretch where I was just watching various things about it, and at one point I had a pretty strong um, psychological understanding about how the pattern was created from my history. You know, just to understand something about that. And um, uh, there's a lot of release that happened around that. You know, there was a, you know, not, not uh, there was a, a shift around the holding of the uh, self-hatred of being me, really. I mean, the, the, the recognition of it being conditioned. It's like, that's where it was it really became like of course of course this happens of course this mind does this self-hatred thing on in certain conditions of course look at this history and so the mind through the willingness to watch willingness to observe began to understand how that history was related in the present moment my understanding of this is that i saw something um you know, a, a memory arise in the present moment that really helped me to understand, oh, that's actually what it was about. It wasn't like I was thinking back about how did this happen, like on the playground, all these people that were mean to me, you know. It wasn't that. It was just watching and being available for what arose, memories that would arise, feelings that would arise, began to put together this understanding of the conditioned nature of the self-hatred. Understanding that conditioned nature was very helpful in terms of no longer having such strong identification. It's like when the self-hatred arose, it was much easier to hold, much easier to hold an awareness because it was no longer feeling so like it was just permeating my soul with blackness. I was just like, oh, this is just self-hatred arising. And then just watching that, watching that, watching that, watching that, watching that, over and over and over and over again. On, one lo- on this long retreat, there was a particular evening where I was just very present for seeing the, the, the fluctuations, the really rapid fluctuations of self-hatred. It would be like, 
It's gone. Oh, it's back. It's gone. It's back. It's gone. So just really being right there to see it arising. It's arising. It's gone. It's arising. It's gone. It's arising. It's gone. And in one moment of that, seeing the arising of it, the mind just suddenly understood this is just a thought. This is just a construct of the mind. That moment of seeing that, in that moment, you know, the mind just like moved into bliss. And there was this thought, never again will I feel (laughs) 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 self-hatred. And there was a ne- the next thought was, no, actually, this is the conditions of this moment to see something now. I had had enough understanding about how insights work at that po- point to recognize, no, this is just the understanding right now. And, uh, and so then th- there was much more just equanimity. It wasn't bliss, it was just whew, equanimity. That moment of understanding uh, was very, very powerful. That was really, that was a very strong wisdom in that moment. You know, it, it, uh, it cut through. I, and my understanding over the years, I mean, I don't think I really knew in that moment what happened. But as I said at the beginning, what's really happened is that the belief in those thoughts has been uprooted. The thoughts still arise, but they're no longer believed that the pattern around, you know, believing them doesn't happen anymore. But when I see those thoughts, you know, actually, it was, it, was, it was quite a while before I even saw the thoughts again. They were so subtle. It's like I have to be in pretty deep retreat often to, to, to notice the little currents of that pattern. So, you know, it's like, there, it's like a big tree was uprooted, but there's still little filaments of the roots that are out there. I respect those filaments. <laughs> they could grow again. <laughs> so when I notice those thoughts, like, yep, that's that thought. It, so far, I don't know, it's been, it's been probably four or five years since that. I don't even remember how long ago it's been. It might be more than that. Might be more like twelve years. <laughs> it's been a while. Um, to to you know to th- that that potency has not that potency of the self hatred is not there, and so this this uh, practice, and and the other mind blowing thing for me there was you know that was that was a um, that was what I would call that moment of the. Uh, it's like the knife cutting through saying, this is just a thought. In contrast to the recognition of the conditioned nature of the experience, which was more of what I would call a psychological insight. You know, it was a kind of an understanding of how conditions from history came into play. And um, that moment of seeing this is just a thought that I would call a, a vipassana insight. It was a seeing into something arising as a phenomenon in the mind, and it was it was very um, it's just very clear. So the other 
piece about this that I think is an important piece of this story is that I went into that retreat with this, you know, in this recognition of, oh, I guess this is my self-hatred retreat. Okay, I have to surrender to that. My my sense was, well, maybe I'll like let go of some of this self-hatred, but you know, insight is like out of the picture at this point. I, and I had this belief that somehow the defilements had to be gone. There had to be this complete purity of mind before any deep insights would arise. And yet what I discovered there was that deep insight can arise in the midst of looking at defilement, in the midst of it. The practice is not separate. It's not like you work for a while. I mean, that analogy aside, you know, the analogy of cleaning the cloth, it's like it all happens together. It can all happen together. The, the witnessing of the defilements and the purification and the insight, it can all happen very quickly. There's many insights, you know, that open our hearts and minds. This is, you know, in, in some ways it's a, it, was a, it was a powerful insight that actually was pretty potent in, in the next few days as any form of mind state arose, it's just like, oh, right, this is just the mind doing its thing. It's like, oh, okay. It's like it, it, my mind was just not believing, <laughs> not believing, like, you know, resistance arose. It's like, oh, that's just the mind. Okay. <laughs> it, that lasted for a day or so, that potency. Um, so I hope that was helpful. I mean, the, the question came... Um, so I thought I would share some of that. But that's, I had a couple more questions I'll have to say for the next time. Um, I was thinking of doing questions in the hall tomorrow so we could start with these, uh, these other questions. So it was our day to talk about defilements. Let's just sit for a moment.